to the uh, Cincy Reform Podcast. My name is Zach Wise. I'm here with my co-pastor, Brandon Burks. And today we're going to be uh, entering into a bit of a particular discussion that relates to our previous mini-series on the Reformed versus Baptist views on things. We want to dive a little bit more deeply into uh, Jeremiah 31 because that really becomes the place where the, the Baptist reading of this particular text is what leads them then into their particular view of the church and their particular view of the sacrament of baptism. And we believe that it is, in fact, a misreading of uh, Jeremiah 31 and a misapplication of it. And so we wanted to spend a little bit of time not just mentioning that in our previous episode on covenant theology, but really entering into the text itself to demonstrate uh, what we believe is a more accurate way of reading from uh, Jeremiah 31. But uh, to begin, let me just read from Jeremiah 31 itself. I'm going to be reading from uh, verse uh, 17, or pardon me, 27 through uh, verse 40. So this is Jeremiah 31, verses 27 through 40, God's holy and inspired word. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel 
to the corner gate. The measuring line will go out farther straight ahead to the hill Gareb. Then it will turn to Goah. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever. Well, clearly within this text, we have those verses that are then quoted for us in the book of Hebrews and the, um, uh, from the Baptistic perspective in terms of how the covenant and its sign of initiation baptism uh, is then administered, flows out of this. But before we get too far down that road, I'd like to ask Brandon, would you um, please kind of give us some uh, context to this uh, text? And maybe also, uh, I think it might be helpful to hear some of your personal context for you, having been a Baptist pastor so maybe tell us about how this verse fits in with the Baptistic um, covenant theology, how it did for you, and then maybe orient us to that text if you could. Sure, yeah. Um, we, it, for, for the Baptist, there's that key phrase in Jeremiah 31 where he's promising this new covenant, and he says, and all will know the Lord. And so the Baptists would recognize that in the Old Covenant, which they would see as largely the Old Testament, um, in the Old Covenant, um, it was a bit of a mix, where not all Israel was Israel, as Paul says. And so you had wheat and tares kind of dwelling within the covenant community. Some people were saved, some people were not saved. But what Baptists would say is, but now we're being clued in that when the new one comes, this kind of mixing is going to go away. And so when the new one comes in Christ, all will know the, the Lord. And so if we're thinking about um, the sacraments, of you know, the sacrament of initiation, um, it, it weighs heavily. So, for example, in the Old Covenant, because it was mixed, they would say, well, you know, it makes sense. You circumcise your, your son on the eighth day. You bring him up. Maybe he's a believer. Maybe he turns out to be a, an Esau. And, but in the New, they would say, it's believers only. And so only believers get the sign of the covenant, which is baptism. And so who do you baptize? You baptize those who have made a profession, mature public profession of faith, who are born again, who are new creations in Christ, who've had this experience. And so that's very much how this verse um, influences Baptist baptism. And uh, for me, for the longest time, this verse was really the, the last pillar kind of holding me up in, in the Baptist world. And uh, as I began to dig into this text, into Jeremiah 31, my Jeremiah 31 pillar, kind of upholding a Baptist understanding of baptism, just shattered. It, it just fell. It was um, no longer there. And then there was, really no more, there was really no other obstacle then keeping me from the Reformed faith because uh, the way in which I was beginning to understand what Jeremiah was getting at when he's speaking about um, this new covenant that's going to come. So that's kind of a more of an autobiographical kind of uh, progression for me. You know, this, this verse was very significant, keep, keeping me in the Baptistic realm until I studied it more and then came out in a more Reformed um, perspective here. 
I think that within this, it's been clear as I've spoken with others that your experience has been very similar. Um, it was for me a long time ago. I was never a Baptist pastor, but that was the last thing for me as I moved from being a, a Baptist to to embracing infant baptism. But uh, now having some of that context in place, how about you start orienting us now to uh, the context of the particular text we have before us, Jeremiah 31. Mm -hmm. What's kind of going on in this um, in this text? What's going on in the background here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, Jeremiah, yeah, as we think about him as a prophet, he had that very difficult um, task to to go to God's wayward people, call them back to covenant faith, to covenant obedience, you know, remembering God rescued them out of Egypt, and um, and now you know we see you know throughout the history of Israel constant disobedience. We see them going after idols, worshiping false gods, doing things that God told them not to do, and then not doing those things that God told them to do. Um, and then so instead of worshiping the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel was very uh, often led astray to worship man-made gods, demons. And so Jeremiah is writing to Israel. He's writing between 627 B.C. and 587 B.C. and, and even beyond. Um, and he spends the majority of the book really confronting the sin of Israel. I mean, you might even say he's bringing a covenant lawsuit against against Israel. Uh, God's covenant people have abandoned God, and now, Jeremiah's warning, you're going to reap the covenant curses because of, of, of what you're doing. Um, but God is merciful, and I think even throughout the book of Jeremiah, as he's speaking about judgment and curses that are going to be coming, we see the mercy of God. Uh, but it, it becomes very evident, though, you know, even as God is, is being merciful, and even, you know, God even says, Return, O faithless ones, and I will heal your faithlessness. I mean, God is merciful throughout this, uh, and God commands them, Circumcise yourself, remove the foreskin from your heart. Now, this is obviously a task that they themselves are not going to be able to do. This is a task that only to which God can do. Um, but as you know, God is showing his mercy, he's calling them back to repentance. We see throughout the book, Israel is not going to return to God, is not going to repent, and it becomes very unclear. They are unable to circumcise their hearts. So we see Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he comes, he wages war on, on Judah, uh, scatters them into exile. And then in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah begins to speak to the exiles, to those who are in exile, to those who were scattered. And you can imagine these people in exile. I mean, they're, they're scared. They've been taken away from their families, from their homeland. Um, maybe they're thinking, has God abandoned us? Uh, maybe they were forced into marriage with uncircumcised pagan men. Uh, maybe they're forced into slavery. I mean, who knows what, uh, what this community is, is, is feeling because of their covenant unfaithfulness. They're feeling these covenant curses now. Um, but you know, as, we're, as we're thinking about their affliction, God begins to speak to them about restoration. And so God now speaks to the exiles uh, about being restored. And he says, you know, after 70 years in exile, God will restore them. So they're going to be in exile for quite a long time, 70 years. I mean, that's a 
generation. A lot of people are going to die off in exile. Um, and uh, there'll probably be a few that are still alive who are young going into mm-hmm. exile. And uh, there's going to be a lot more born into exile. And so, uh, but in 70 years, God will restore them. And God fulfills that in 538 BC, where they're allowed to kind of come back into the promised land. They're allowed to rebuild. But that's not the ultimate good news. And even even as they're rebuilding the temple, they weep because it was not as good as, as it was back in Solomon's day. The glory did not return to the place. And it was almost like temporary good news. You know, you're allowed to go back into land. Yes, you can rebuild a kind of a smaller scaled down version of, of what it was under Solomon's reign. Um, but then God began to speak to the exiles about even more than just go back to the land. He begins to speak to them about uh, almost another exile, another another exodus rather from from sin, another exodus, a, a, a new covenant where God is going to um, uh, do something even even greater. And he speaks about this new covenant, um, not only in chapter 20 or 31, he speaks about it in chapter 32. He hints at it again in chapter 33. And um, so we, it's interesting, though, you know, here you are in exile because you've broken the old covenant and you're hearing about this new covenant and you're beginning to wonder, okay, what is this new covenant going, going to be like? Um, well, he says it's not going to be like the, the old one. It's not going to be like the mosaic one. And that's the point, I think, of the chapter where you were reading about how he says, I'm going to make a covenant not like the one that he made on Sinai, not the mosaic, but it's going to be a new one in distinction from the one at Sinai. Um, but uh, it, it's also helpful to note here, it's not in distinction from the one he made with Abraham. In fact, it's the fulfillment of the one he made with Abraham. There's that connection between the Abrahamic covenant and the new, or the new being the, the fulfillment of that. In fact, that's why Paul can look at a church filled with pagans, and, or, or, or rather past pagans, past Gentiles, who are now in, into the church, and he can say, you're Abraham's offspring. Even though they had no earthly connection whatsoever to Abraham, they are spiritually uh, within Abraham's lineage. They are, in a very real sense, Abraham's offspring. So there's that connection between the Abrahamic and the new, but what Jeremiah does in Jeremiah 31 is he juxtaposes the new against the, the, the Sinaitic, the Mosaic, the old one, and saying it's going to be it's going to be a bit different here, and and he highlights a few things. He says in verse thirty three of mm-hmm. uh, Jeremiah thirty one, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and no longer shall they teach his neighbor and each his brother know the Lord. They will all know me, uh, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And just you know, just by way of still kind of connecting the context here. Um, Old Testament saints were saved in the same way that we are. They, they were not somehow you know, justified by works or anything like that. It was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Their faith was a forward-looking faith of the coming Messiah. Um, now we look to what the Messiah did and, and, and is doing and will do in the future, but, um, but it's, their, their faith was in Christ, and they were born again by the Holy Spirit. And so they experienced a lot of these things, but as um, David Murray points out, um, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, you could, you could liken to a, uh, a water dropper. 
kind of just dripping water. Where in the New Testament, things are being poured out in, in, with power and in abundance. And the, the Holy Spirit's kind of like this... Um, fire hydrant, you know, shooting out water. And um, and so there's going to be this increase. There's going to be this spread where now the Gentiles are going to be included and there's going to be an, an internalization. And so he's promising um, this kind of grander, bigger picture. But we, we should also remember that um, the same Holy Spirit was operative in the Old Testament as it was or as it is in the in the new. So just a few things, I think, yeah. to kind of calibrate uh, what, what's going on here in Jeremiah. Absolutely. How do we start thinking a bit about some of the ways that we need to read um, prophetic literature? Because I think that one of the problems that we would see is that people want to take a, a prophetic book and read it um, in, a, in a way that's not faithful to the genre. Sure, yeah. So maybe you could start talking about how the genre of the prophecy and you, you mentioned how it's, you know, uh, indicting Israel and it's speaking about their exile. Then there's this ray of hope that's coming. And then part of this great hope is a, a, a second exodus from captivity. There's the first exodus from the Egyptian captivity a long time ago. There's going to be a greater exodus mm -hmm. from this Babylonian captivity that's going to be coming in the future with a new covenant, not the old covenant. Mm -hmm. But how do we read this kind of prophetic literature? Help us in introduce us to the genre here and how that might guide us. Yeah, there's a helpful um, illustration. I'm not sure who I heard this from. But they said when you're reading prophecy, um, it's almost like looking at a mountain from really far away. And you're really far away. You're looking at this, at this mountain. And it looks like it just kind of goes up like a mountain. But then as you get close to it, you see there's like different pitches to it. Where maybe there's a, sh a shorter pitch, and then there's a bigger pitch, and maybe there's like three or four pitches, and you you didn't get the you, you didn't get all of those details when you were kind of way back there, but as you approach, you see the various levels. Um, the way in which the Old Testament, um, uh, in terms of the Old, Te Old Testament prophecy, rather, is it gives us almost like a panoramic kind of view, this big picture view, um, but. It's in different stages that things can happen in, in different orders. So there could be multiple levels of fulfillment even. Whereas, you know, the hope for these exiles in, in captivity, you know, they're hoping for that restoration that God promised where they're going to go back to, to the land, but that's not ultimate. They're also hoping for this new covenant to come, and indeed it did come with Christ, but even that's not finalized. We're still waiting, right, for the second coming of Christ. And so I think that we have to be attuned to there's going to be some already not yet stuff happening. There's going to be various pitches and there's going to be it's not like a completed whole it's not like a one for one well now uh, this completed whole is going to come you know in package everything's here right now where there's there's going to be some development and things that happen first and second and so forth and so maybe to um, uh, make sure that we're clear on this then so you're saying that the Old Testament prophets we're looking, you mentioned like a panoramic, like a big picture view. So they're viewing things from a long ways away as they speak about the future. Mm -hmm. But then what you're saying is that as we get closer to the time of fulfillment, we're recognizing there's more nuance there. That there, there's a complex series of events as we get closer to it. But from further afield to the prophet, it looked like one simple event 
one thing was going to happen. So, for example, maybe a, a good example here might be the two comings of Jesus Christ, right? Sure. So, from the prophetic vision, they're looking ahead and they're just seeing Messiah comes and glory comes with Messiah. But then once you get closer to Messiah, you realize, oh, there are two comings here. Right. And this complicates things, right? Mm -hmm. And that probably plays into what you're describing as an already and not yet, mm -hmm. correct? Maybe mm -hmm. you can flesh that out for us a little bit more here. Yeah, so already not yet means um, something has arrived, but yet we're waiting for like a final thing. Mm -hmm. So for example, like we are we are truly free from sin, but we're not we're not completely finally free from sin. Like we still sin every day. Um, we are truly um, unshackled from the oppressions and, and wiles of Satan, but yet he's still uh, um, hurting the church and doing these things. So there's this already not yet tension. Um, I heard years ago one theologian used uh, World War II as an example. So he talked about how like on D-Day, when the Allied troops really crushed the enemy's back, that was like the definitive moment where, hey, the, the Allies are winning and they're getting the upper hand. The enemy's really defeated. And but that wasn't the war wasn't over at D Day. There is still a little bit of time before V Day victory mm -hmm. happened, and so you had this window right between D Day and V Day, where the Allies fought with a posture of victory because they knew that they were winning. They knew the enemy was on the run. They knew they were going to finally at one day crush the enemy, but that day was delayed a bit. And so to kind of use that analogy to map on to, to um, redemptive history, the cross would be like D-Day. That was mm -hmm. the day that the enemy was really decisively, the blow happened, uh, and now we fight with a posture of victory. But V-Day would be the second coming of Christ, and so we're still waiting for that second coming of Christ. And so we're in this already not yet tension where mm -hmm. things are here but not finalized, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And so then to go back to the idea of the prophetic, genre here if the prophets were speaking about the victory of d-day and v-day from hundreds of years um mm -hmm. in in the, the past they might speak about that as one episode mm -hmm. as one um moment when a victory was accomplished but then as you get closer to you realize there's that uh, that nuance going on those different distinctions of events but yes they saw it faithfully and clearly but now with a level of detail Mm -hmm. that's um, that that's uh, observed when it actually transpires sure. in real human history. Sure. So can you now maybe take that kind of a concept and help us to see them with respect to Jeremiah 31, how this really helps us to make better sense of this text mm -hmm. and of this prophetic genre and what's speaking about this great new covenant than what might be um, articulated from a Baptistic perspective. Yeah, for sure. So as um, you know, Jeremiah is talking about this coming new covenant. Um, you know, all will know the Lord, and all of the, all of the, these great promises are going to be happening. Um, it, it's it's better to see these things as an already not yet you know, of, of this in between D Day and V Day, and that's the way in which the New Testament, for example, presents Jeremiah thirty one. You mentioned how the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah thirty one, quotes Jeremiah thirty one in chapter eight, and then again in chapter ten. And in chapter ten, the writer of Hebrews speaks about Jeremiah thirty one, and again, you know, all will know the Lord, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then he goes right into speaking about somebody who was sanctified by the blood of the covenant and then fell away. And so that's interesting, isn't it? Because 
from a baptistic perspective, the new covenant is a believer's only covenant. Only believers are, are covenant members. Only believers are um, you know, baptized and brought into God's covenant. And then yet we have somebody who was in the covenant, sanctified by the blood of the covenant even, and then who, who fell away from, from it. So that means that the covenant is not a believer's only covenant. It's still mixed. Even though we're in, in the New Testament, uh, to use Herman Boving's phrase, there are going to be people in the covenant, but not of the covenant. There's going to be people who are covenant members, but who are not ultimately saved, who are not ultimately born again, as uh, 1 John 2, 19 says. There are going to be some who are amongst us, um, but not really with us. And they're going to fall away to show that they were never with us. And so we're going to have that kind of reality in the new covenant. And so to, to make this, this wild distinction between the old and the new, um, to somehow the old was mixed and the new is as pure believers only, that's to read too much into it. Now when Christ comes back, yes, that is when it will finally be realized. When Christ comes back, all will know the Lord. When Christ comes back, it'll be climactic and finalized and full. But until that, we're still working toward that, right? We're still working toward that goal of um, all knowing the Lord. I mean, that's what pastors do week in and week out. We're pressed to that goal. We want everyone to know the Lord. We want all the covenant children to grow up knowing the Lord. We're pressing toward that great goal and that great vision. But to somehow think that that happened already is to, you know, what many say, to have an over-realized eschatology. It's when you're taking things about the second coming and you're trying to read them into the here and now and make it a present reality when it's not, and that's not the way the Bible presents it. Again, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, um, there's people who are in the covenant but not of it, who, are, who, are, who finally f fall away. For another example, Jeremiah speaks about um, everything being internalized, right? This internalizing of everything. It's not just going to be like an external law, but everything's going to be written on our hearts, and it's going to be like this perfected state almost. But we know, we know even with inside of ourselves, things are not perfect in terms of a perfect internalization of the law or perfect internalization of, of these great things. Uh, when Christ comes back, that will be true. And we're pressing toward that, but uh, that's not arrived yet. And so again, to read all of these things as a present reality is to try to take something that's going to be true of the second coming and try to make it work in the here and the now when it's not meant to work in the here and the now right um, yet. It's something that we're still pressing, pressing toward. And even just within the context of Jeremiah 31, there's things within the context that are clearly speaking about the second coming of Christ. And so as Jeremiah is writing about the new covenant, he has in view things that are going to be inaugurated by Christ's death and resurrection, but that will continue and not be fully realized until Christ comes back again. Mm -hmm. So is that helpful? I think so, and I think it's also worth noting then the following two chapters of Jeremiah, chapters 32 and 33, you have some very clear prophecy there that's linked with chapter 31. Mm -hmm. And it describes this new creation um, picture. And within this new creation, there's this 
uh, glory within the land. And there is a king that's seated upon the throne. It's this messianic age of glory that Israel is being promised. And that's part and parcel of what's being spoken of in chapter 31. That's all about this glory that Israel is going to inherit in the land with the king on the throne. And they have to say then, well, if we want to take, um, if we want to, we want to take the, the Baptist approach to it, then we have to say, well, where's the glory now in the land? And then where's the king that's on the throne? We say, well, that's not how this works because yes, there is a king on the throne, but he's in heaven right now. He's not yet come back to glorify the earth. There are two stages in this fulfillment process. There is the inauguration or the already, which has begun. And then eventually comes the consummation or the not yet that is um, not yet here. And so this idea of this new covenant, this messianic age, it's begun, but we still have a mixed community until it's brought to its ultimate fulfillment with the king enthroned on earth, not just the holy land, but all the earth, and bringing glory and prosperity uh, to bear upon it. So uh, if, if, if you don't have anything else you want to chime in on, on that, please do, but um, maybe start applying this maybe... Um, maybe practically, explicitly to a baptism in the church, just to make sure all of our viewers and listeners are on the same page here. Yeah. So, you know, that, that was, for me, you know, as, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, that was kind of like the big pillar holding me back from baptizing uh, children, thinking that the covenant community was a purely believers only. But now that that's gone, now that I see that, wait a second, I was, I was trying to bring in something of the future into the here now, it's still mixed, um, that um, and also just to kind of go back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, because in Jeremiah thirty-two, he's also talking about the new covenant. And I think what's interesting in Jeremiah thirty-two is he's is he's talking about this new covenant that's going to come, and he says, um, "And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever, for their own good and for the good of their own children after them. And I will make." an everlasting covenant with them. And he goes on and on and on, but he clearly has in view there the people and their children. Uh, that's, very, that's very Abrahamic. I mean, all the way back in the beginning, it's always been um, parents and their children, the people of God and their children. And even as he's promising the, the new covenant, the new covenant is to the people of God and their children. They are the people of God together. And so that's still the case. Like our children are still part of the covenant. And um, we give them the judgment of charity that, yes, God ordinarily works in and through our, um, um, our children, the children of believers, and he raises them up and he gives them the Holy Spirit. I mean, even from the womb we see in Scripture that uh, infants can have the Holy Spirit. And so we understand that God works in this way. We give the judgment of charity. We baptize our children, just like the, uh, Israel circumcised their children, giving them the sign of the covenant, bringing them into the church. So we baptize our children, give them the sign of the covenant, bring them into the church. Colossians 2, I think, uh, is a very clear way in which Paul links circumcision with baptism. Just as we circumcised infants, newborns, so we baptize children, boys and girls, that are born into the covenant, that, that who, whose um, uh, parents are, are believers as well. And so um, we, we give those children the judgment of charity, bringing them into the covenant, and... 
Jeremiah 31 is not trying to is not speaking against that. Jeremiah 31 is not excluding children or anything like that, but it's just saying it's pointing out that final goal of when Christ comes, all will know the Lord, even you know everybody will, and so um, you know the wheat and the tares will be separate at that point, but not not now. Well, that's very helpful. We hope it's been helpful for you too. Uh, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Cincy Reform Podcast. Check out our other episodes at cincyreformed.org and our sponsoring church, westsidereformed.org. So until next time, thank you, and we'll see you later.